0: Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination.
1: Jason Biasi on the programme today. Jason is someone I enjoy talking with very much, and I was very happy to get him on the podcast. Jason is a professor at the Vancouver School of Theology in British Columbia, canada however he is originally from north carolina and he studied at davidson college and duke university there jason got his phd in systematic theology from duke in 2005 he is also a contributing editor to the christian century magazine and he has served previously as a fellow in theology and leadership at duke divinity school and as a research fellow in the new media project at union theological seminary in new york city He has been a visiting fellow of St. John's College at the Department of Theology and Religion at Durham University. Jason is the author and editor of 18 books, including most recently Northern Lights, Resurrecting Church in the North of England, and he was also the editor for Recovering, the book by friend of the show Aaron White. Jason's work has appeared in Christianity Today, Theology Today, Books and Culture, Sojourners, and First Things. As I said, he's always good to talk to, he's always good to hear, and I'm very honoured that Jason decided to spend his time with us in the tent. I hope you enjoy the show. First things first. When I was talking to you just before pressing record, I said, "What is your title at Vancouver School of Theology?" And you said, "I'm a nothing. I'm a nothing at VST." Please describe what that means. What What do you mean by "I'm a nothing" at VST? Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for the chance to talk, Stephen. Um, so I teach preaching,
0: um, okay. and uh, I, I've got a couple of administrative roles. But um, when I say I'm a nothing. Um, it, all I mean is I'm not a principal. I'm not a dean. I'm not somebody who, you know, the only things I get done are things are by um, being nice to people. Right. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's a very American notion of nothing that uh, I don't have any hard power. It's 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 soft power.
1: You have to the rely is, on anybody- charm.
0: <laughs> exactly right. Which is often comically lacking. So, uh, I mean, this is one thing I've learned from people who do administration. They don't feel like they have the power they want either. Like everyone feels like they don't have as much power as they would like. So this is why you gotta be careful with wanting power. What's the name of the guy who's the president of Gordon college in Massachusetts, uh, Michael Lindsay is his name. He wrote this book called Faith in the Halls of Power and he's a sociologist. So he did all these interviews with uh, uh, Christians who are in Hollywood and who are in some in the church who are in academia, who are in different fields. Um, and every one of them to a person Said, um, yeah, I couldn't do anything. Like I didn't have any agency. This is US presidents, right? Let's say, Yeah, Congress would jam me up, and what are you gonna do? I didn't have any power. all of them use that I didn't have any power language. And he'd be like, You were the most powerful human on the planet. And they'd be like, Yeah, but you know, my staff and the cabinet and whatever. Um, but so it's it's just a good kind of like uh this is a reason Christians have always been ambivalent about power and felt like, yeah, um, you should probably get rid of it. But then the problem is somebody's got to run the meeting, right? And somebody's got to decide how to spend the money, right? And that those are those are power things. So, uh, so when I say I'm a nothing, I'm trying to avoid hard power. It means you
1: don't have you you don't have some concretized uh, position but it doesn't mean that you don't have a will and can't get things done. So I, I, I define power as having, uh, you measure power to the extent that if you want something, you can see it happen.
0: Totally. That's really good. And I, yeah, there, I lean back toward nothing descriptions. I mean, our school is a lovely little school. We're one of the only schools in North America that's growing. Um, 90, some like, something like 90% of ATS accredited schools are not. And so it, it's unusual in that it's a small school that's growing. And some of that is the guy I work for who uh, has offered a vision of the faith that young seminarians want to sign up for. So that's exciting. The more I'm around Richard Topping, the more I feel like, man, what you do is amazing. Good thing. I'll never be doing it. <laughs> Also, my title, I'm the butler chair in homiletics and biblical hermeneutics. And so I have two words in my title that ordinary civilians don't know what on earth they mean. And so I try to avoid using the title, hence the nothing
1: description. Well, yes, yes. I mean, even being a theologian is a terrible, terrible thing to be (laughs) at parties. When I'm getting my hair cut and people ask what I am, I just say, I help organizations get better.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's better to lie, you know you're not lying. You're, that's what you really do. Um, I'm tempted to lie. I never do because I would forget what I was lying about. But um, I generally say I teach preaching and um, they don't have anything to say. And I, and they'll say something like, wow. And I'll say, yeah, someone has to do it. And then and they'll change the subject.
1: I I feel like there's so many things that I want to talk about with you. I mean, you already launched straight into it. I One of the things I really, rarely get to do on this podcast, because it's it's a part of my life that doesn't really get talked about in the podcast, which is that I I am a theological educator. And for a long time, I was institutionalized. I mean, I've worked for various theology institutions in Canada and in the UK. I've I've taught for them. I've helped to design courses. I've run master's degrees. I've marked thousands upon thousands of essays in my life and uh, all that stuff. And I don't get to talk about this with people very much, and I, and I wanted to bring you on because I, I was interested in talking about the state of theological education and 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 what and what we're what we're facing right now, and you already mentioned how your vST Vancouver School of theology is one of the few that's growing as a seminary and and I'd like to talk with you about that and the future of it um, and also about what it is to have a position or a title in this world and, and what what does it mean when i mean I famously Not famously, (laughs) I'm famous in my own world. I'm famous in my family, (laughs) famously amongst my wife and my friends. I quit my job as an institutional theologian in order to go freelance. And you chided me. Now you chided me, which is partly why I want to talk with you, because you said, ah, I thought you were a Kierkegaardian. And now you're bringing up, you're just starting a new institution.
0: (laughs) Yeah. um, I'm really glad you did that, by the way. Um, More of us need to consider that strongly, right? I mean, in my world, Um, You know, I studied at Duke Divinity School and then I stayed around and got a Ph.D. there. And it felt like Duke was really good at punching out preachers and punching out Ph.D.s who would then teach in academic institutions. And you couldn't cross back and forth. Um, You got to choose a slot and you got to stay in that slot. The thing is, it's not true. Those aren't the only things you can do. And I accidentally discovered this. I was working on my Ph.D. and I was miserable. And I was pastoring a church where I was delighted, even though it was the kind of church I had been implicitly taught would be terrible. Uh, it was about 80 people. It was a rural tobacco farming community. Um, and the basic impression you get about small churches anywhere is you should get out of there as fast as you can and go somewhere that matters. Right. No, nowhere is that written on the syllabus. It's just and it's not Duke's fault. It's just in the ether
1: is the assumption that that this is like training wheels and then you'll you'll get a big mega church when you've grown up or
0: well there aren't a lot of mega churches but there are there are kind of program sized churches so like if you got 400 people the budget's big enough that you can kind of move some things around it's really hard to move things around in a kind of family chapel style church where there's two last names um i found that incorrect by the way uh, i wrote a little book on the gifts of the small church and talked about how we grew and blah 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 um But uh, one could accuse me in that book of mostly being kind of sentimentalizing and romanticizing, which is true. I happened to bump into the guy who ran Christian Century Magazine, and he was complaining that he couldn't find people to review movies for him. And I was like, movies? I watched too many of them. I might as well make this profitable. Um, And he said, movie people don't know anything about God, and God people don't know anything about movies, and that's the problem. And really, like that was one of the, this was before Netflix, but uh, that was one of my escapes when I was miserable as I just ran a stack of DVDs. So I offered a review of movies for him. I never heard back from him for a while. And then finally he said, could you write about Rick Warren and the purpose driven church for us? I was like, <laughs> yeah. So I spent <laughs> weeks on this. It's the like most polished thing I wrote like yeah. ever. And uh, it came out, they paid me 150 bucks. And then they offered me something else to write about. I was like, yes, sir. And so I did a thing on uh, Left Behind. Um, again, super polished. I sent it to a bunch of people. It's the best work I can do. The editors messed it up a little bit in the editing, just like the Rick Warren piece, but whatever. I'll defend that. And uh, I noticed on the back of a book, Richard Kaufman, who's the book review editor, used to work for Christianity Today. And so I sent him an email. I was like, how does somebody End up at Christian Century, it used to be at Christianity Today, because those two are frenemies in the US, right? Yeah. Christianity one is Today was
1: liberal and yeah. one is conservative. Yeah.
0: Right. Christianity Today was started by Billy Graham to be a Christian version of the Christian Century. That was his language. And he said, Well, never mind about that. We have a job open. Are you interested? And then my phone rang, and it was the guy in the next office who had asked me to write the articles and said, uh, Could you come up to Chicago this week and interview? And I was like, Hey, this is a little fast. Like, I normally need a little romancing first, some candlelight, you know. Uh, but I did and uh, worked there for four years. So in other words, i, I forest dumped my way into a journalistic job, right? Um, but there are other fields that people with seminary degrees and with doctoral degrees can contribute to, flourish in. It's just that those aren't what those institutions
1: are designed for. And so they're not very
0: good at pointing
1: students in those directions. But what's happening with the seminary? So a seminary is essentially, like you said, I mean, it, it, there are other things that could happen there but it's real reason for existing is to produce people for church ministry that's what it's for
0: yeah theological colleges in the uk same deal
1: right so what's happening to the world of the seminary i mean what what, what's happening these days with with that is this is this a a booming a boom time for seminarians (laughs)
0: it feels like a right answer to this question no it's awful it's really awful and I believe in seminaries, I think they're important institutions. We got three hundred of them in North America. We don't need three hundred of them. We need thirty of them and lo and behold, there's only ten percent that are growing right So the problem is it's really hard to close an institution and people tend to rally and close ranks and find money and cut salaries and programming and kind of sort of try and survive on it's kind of zombie
1: mind. lots of zombie Bible schools. There's exactly forward. that. Yeah. There's, and and when
0: I say 300, I mean 300 accredited seminaries, MDF granting institutions. They're more Bible colleges. Yeah. Um, and exactly. I know I know North America's big, but it's not big enough for all of that. Um, and this isn't a time of church decline. And so do you really need to gin up enthusiasm for a degree that's going to decrease your earning power and decrease your social standing forever? I mean, it's all part of the crumbling of Christendom. So, but there's still MFA degrees. And so somebody's still getting those degrees, but they shouldn't be, right? Um, to be to have a master's in fine arts is also going to decrease your earning power. But so the only reason to do this is because somebody feels called by God to do it, knowing full well that it's not going to be lucrative or impressive, even in their own families. So this is why I think Kierkegaard's really helpful. Um, Kierkegaard saw the crumbling of Christendom while it still was uncrumbled. And was trying to say, we should talk about Christianity differently um, at a time when it seemed crazy and stupid and idiotic. Like, what do you mean? Like, there's plenty of good jobs in Denmark in the early 1800s. He was talking and,
1: about Christendom's death at the height of its golden age, according to right. the when it was in yeah,
0: When it was in perfect health, Yeah, according to every outward measure. So I assume this is part of the reason you found him... So compelling I'm reading your your book on Kierkegaard I gotta say man you can really write uh, this is one thing that academia often makes us terrible at because you're trained to write for one person who's your PhD director and that person gets paid to read it and then you're also paid to write for the people who will examine you know your committee in the US or your you know external readers in the UK and those people are also paid to read dissertations and they don't care if it's badly written. So you have to actually go out of your way to make the prose pop, to make the sentences luminous. And if you do it, usually they mistrust it because they figure you're hiding the fact that you don't understand. Yeah,
1: issues. right. You're using so. I did have yes. a good supervisor. A shout out to Torrance Kirby at McGill University. He's a I heard great things about Kirby. Have you? Do you know him? Do you know who he is?
0: No, I don't. But Richard Topping, my principal, does. Well, Torrance
1: torrence kirby yeah he uh, he was my supervisor for my masters and he's not a kirkegaardian he's a he's a church historian and a, and a theologian he, anglican theology is his main thing but he because of the way uh, religious studies departments work they can't always find master supervisors for you that are directly in your subject so he he was assigned to me and i wrote my first chapter for him and and i was a guy who i wasn't a wonder kid but i'm a guy who's been an academic or a scholarly person for most of his schooling life and I wasn't slapped back very much academically in my career up till that point so I give him my my piece of prose and he he had a meeting with me and and it was really interesting he was not mean he wasn't nasty but he said you know the problem with this is it's just not very elegant and I was I hurt it hurt because I'd never been told that before and now I just think that was the best thing I've ever heard from anybody like you know, it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like Harrison Ford said to John, to George Lucas. You know, you could type this shit, George, but you sure can't, but you say, can't it. say it. <laughs> it's a That's little bit exactly like that. Right. It's like Torrance said. You know, you can type this shit, but it's not readable. Yeah. And I was like, this is good to hear. I need this. Yeah.
0: This is what I love that Christian Century is telling writers. Okay, everyone gets too many magazines. No one has time to read. They're going to pick this up and glance at one or two things. You want your pros to grab them and not let them put the magazine down, right? Like, that's really hard to do. Um, And we're not trained to do that well.
1: But what are we training? Now, this is what I wanna talk about. I'm I'm gonna attack the seminary a little bit. Good. Why do theologians have to be training church leaders? Or why do church leaders have to be taught by theologians?
0: I mean, the the honest answer is in the US, we've got accrediting agencies that demand it. But the theological answer would be that theologians are trying to help foster the skills to talk about God in a world where nobody understands or wants God talk. The problem is academically trained theologians are terrible at that because we talk to other theologians all the time who understand our language. And so we feel like, well, you just, you know, you speak French, just like we do here in this French faculty. And if you f- speak French better, then all the people on the street who actually speak Indonesian will understand you. Now, let's get better at French and the Indonesians will come. Up. No, that, that that it was always a colonialist mindset. And um, we're really terrible at learning not just the language. We were usually pretty good at learning languages because we believed in translating the Bible and blah, blah, blah. But actually learning what people care about, what moves their heart, that's really hard to do. And theologians aren't usually good at that. Missiologists are, trained missionaries are. But then we got our own kind of hesitation about that whole missionary project now. That's the irony is, you know, in the fundamentalist world, they worry about two fields. They worry about Old Testament because... You learn about other cultures and you realize the Bible borrowed from all these other languages and cultures and stories and blah, blah, blah. And therefore, some of those cultures and stories must not have been entirely wicked. That's the problem. Um, Two, they worry about missions because they say missions, just like Old Testament, births liberals. And that's that's the ultimate catch-all negative category. And it's for the same reason, because you learn that people from other cultures and languages and stories bring goodness and you make friends with them. And you eat food at their mother's table and you start to love your friends and you start to feel like, hey, um, I really want to get the gospel of John just right so she can read it. But I, if I'm going to do that, I need to hear her stories. And some of them are good stories. Some of them are stories I'm going to add to my repertoire and tell people when I get back home. So among fundamentalists, they, they fear that those two fields, Old Testament and missiology, birth, birth liberals. And I find mainline liberal Protestants are always surprised by that.
1: But there is a uh, the problem is the the there's two different horses pulling in different directions because a lot of seminaries are there to create well to churn out leaders to keep the old institution going. We talked about zombie institutions there's a lot of old churches, not just evangelical there's a lot of churches, mainline Protestant as well as evangelical, which are just they are kind of coasting on inherited staff resources and 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 real estate and or they've got just enough people to justify their existence and they're sort of limping along, or they are very uh, denominationally strong. So they're evangelical or they're fundamentalist or conservative and they've got a real culture warrior sense of like, it's us against the world and circle the wagons. So they send these people, their young people, to seminary in order to be brought up as shock troops to defend the institution, right? That's exactly but right. But then what happens is they meet a bunch of people like you and me who go, hey, let's just explore these issues. Let's just talk about things. Let's think outside the denominational box. Let's consider where, this, where these stories came from or how other people might think of them. And so it's, it's real cross-purposes because...
0: It is. Yeah, no, man, what you're describing is real. It's why I'm, I'm so interested in your work at Tent Theology, because you're trying to say, hey, there's a different way we can do theology here.
1: Well, I just think theology should not be training people for ministry. I just I I want people to be trained for for church ministry if that's what you want, but I don't think theology is the same thing. That's right; it's not the same thing.
0: And that, yeah, I mean, I work at a seminary. We're on a campus of one of the great universities in North America, University of British Columbia, and historically, Canadian universities traded with the church quite deeply. So it was quite common, say, for the principal of the Emmanuel School. Um, of theology at um, the University of Toronto to next become the president of the University of Toronto, right? Because that was just, they, you know, like we're just moving around the chairs at the country club, right? By the time Canadians got to the West Coast, that was still happening among, at the country club level. This is not on the UBC's website anywhere, but their first degrees were granted on our charter with the legislature of British Columbia. They insist they were, they've always been secular. That's sort of true. <laughs> But their first degrees were granted through us. So um, UBC is is often quite hostile to the five seminaries on its campus, quite allergic to anything that looks like public acknowledgement of any kind of relationship. But there are quiet institutional affiliations. So my principal, Richard Topping, is on the Senate at UBC and goes to those meetings and so on. Here's the interesting thing. The president of UBC is an evangelical. He's a Japanese-Canadian scientist and cellist named Santa Ono. He had a stint at Oxford for a time. He's a genius. He's a kind of um, one of these polymath kind of people. And he had a conversion experience as an undergraduate at UCLA. And he tells this story quite movingly where, and I've heard him tell it in public venues, he's a freshman at UCLA. He's desperately depressed. And it was a couple of kids from InterVarsity who wouldn't let him jump out his window and kill himself, physically stayed with him all night. And he went and got help the next day, and he credits being alive to two obnoxiously evangelical undergraduates who didn't know him from Adam, um, but knocked on his door to try and share the gospel with him. Now he, he's uh, he's really involved at 10th Church here in Vancouver. So with Sense Ono, we've seen a kind of friendliness from the administration that is not typical at UBC. But the thing is, I say it's not typical, but the, rector, the, the, the president of the university too before him was the guy who bought the building that VST was in for $30 million Canadian dollars and gave us a new lease on life. So that's an example of your story. We had real estate and we had real estate because of a colonialist legacy, but he didn't need to buy that building for $30 million. We had no one else we could sell it to. It was like literally the UBC had to be the only buyer there, there was no competition. They could have given us nothing. And and they could have just starved us out and waited for us to close and then just taken the building for a song, right? So we took that money. We remodeled the dorm. Now we meet in the dorm. It's tricked out for technology. And the economics department is in the old VST building. We can't do that anymore. You can only play that card one time, right? But that's part of our restart.
1: So why do you think VST has a good relationship with its kind of parent university or whatever in a way that others like I, when I was at Oxford, I mean, the, the uh, Oxford, the divinity faculty was sort of famously like an embarrassment to the rest. I mean, Oxford university was embarrassed that they had a the divinity department and they've changed the word. It's not theology anymore. It's religious studies. You see, you often see this divinity faculties call themselves religious studies departments. Now, you know, why, why did Vancouver school of theology, how come it's not the Vancouver school of religious studies and sociological comparative Culture studies.
0: Yeah, no one planned this. But when I talk to British friends and Canadian friends, they tend to say, well, you guys should be more affiliated with UBC. I mean, really, you should be granting UBC degrees. Like, you guys need to kind of get in there. You got a friendly in the administrative wing, right? Um, And the answer is no, we'll never do that. The reason is UBC has its own Department of Religious Studies. So they teach religion the way they want to for their own PhD students and their own master students, their own undergraduates. I don't know what those folks go and do. A UBC PhD is a good degree, but it's like what you describe. So the administration is fine having its own religion department, but would never entertain a kind of approach by us to be involved in some way, um, precisely because we're too confessional. We believe too much stuff, right? Let me try another university. Uh, University of Virginia. Peter Oakes taught there. John Milbank taught there. It's a great school. Um, Their religion department has always been way more confessional than it should have been. And Stanley Harawas likes to say this is God's revenge on Thomas Jefferson. Um, uh, Thomas Jefferson started the school. He was famously against any sort of religious affiliation for Virginia, for the United States, for the University of Virginia. Um, But of course, Virginia had a religion department because it was considered part of the human experience. Well, At some point, they got embarrassed by this and started hiring non-Western scholars to teach other religions, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and so on. And they were unwilling to teach in a way that hid the fact that they were Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim. They said, no, that's the only thing I have to bring. I'm not going to pretend I'm I'm something other than what I am. If you want to hire me, I'm going to be myself. And this is often women of color, um, people of color from around the world, et cetera. And they turned out to be the most popular faculty there. Students would flock to them. They would turn out good PhD students and so on. So there was some cover for when they needed to hire a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim, they could hire one who believed the stuff. And so now they got people across their faculty who believe the stuff. It's not a theology department. They're not a theological college. It's not a seminary. But they have confessional scholars across the grid. that That's what I think those programs should look like.
1: Are you... I mean, what's your hope or what's your vision for theological education now? I mean, how would you what would you say to somebody who some young person who's thinking, I'm not interested in church leadership, but I'd like to study theology. Well, you're describing my 16
0: year old son. Oh, really? So uh, I keep trying to talk him out of it. Like, um, but he really wants to go to the best place to study theology he can find, whether in Britain or the U.S., Mm -hmm. I got real mixed feelings about that, Stephen.
1: So, so why, would you, why would you want to talk him out of it?
0: It's not clear to me what he's... So this is me speaking as a kind of middle-class, petite bourgeois American teaching in Canada. What's he going to do with it? There are no jobs. I keep leaning on him to think about ordination. And he's like, yeah, I don't think I want to do that. So, I mean, I keep thinking, okay, maybe this is like your kid who wants to study fine arts or who wants to study whatever that they're not going to make a living in. But he's also really good at it. So that's where my pastor instinct kicks in. And I say, okay, God seems to have given you these gifts for some reason. God still has work to accomplish in the world through gifts like these. The missing piece for me is the church. So what church do I tell him to get ordained in? We're United Methodists, my wife and I. He's worshipped at a Christian Missionary Alliance congregation. Is he supposed to approach some church cold and be like, hey, I totally want to be ordained? No, that's not how it works. So and there i'm at a loss um, but maybe that'll happen i didn't know about ordination until i got to seminary
1: i mean you began this conversation by saying actually you discovered there's other things to do with your theology that's exactly right degree. that's exactly right
0: but how many of them are there and it's going to take
1: entrepreneurial skill
0: like you have to start something that doesn't exist to be your job and generally churches are terrible at that and so are universities they know they're supposed to talk about entrepreneurship but they're terrible at it and so if they're going to do it they reach into the business school or some leadership institute for help and they're terrible at it too.
1: I do feel like there's something in we were talking about it you know, almost like a fine art degree or a philosophy degree, like where you're it's not a job. You don't you don't study theology because there's a job at the end of it. And f- quite frankly, the jobs at the end of it are terrible jobs, and you probably shouldn't go for them anyway. <laughs> you don't want them anyway, trust I me. I really right. don't recommend people become being a full-time Christian, a full-time uh uh, uh what am, I, what am I? Not a full time Christian, but like being a professional, a full time professional Christian is bad for everybody. It's what bad you are for you.
0: A, you're a Pharisee. That's what, that's yeah, what the job is. You're just a
1: Pharisee. You are just making you're living off of a thing. You're, you're forced into a position of, of, that your outer is not conducive or, uh, of, of the inner. It, you're just actually it, living a life where you're just keep prolonging the institution, the religion. And, and it's not good for anybody, including no. the, the full time professional Christian. And so I still think theology is good. I don't think theology. I mean, I would love to see some of these like adolescent discipleship, you know, these YWAMs or these you send your young people off on a year's Christian discipleship training course. And I'd love to see them get real theology in that. I would, too. This is what you're saying. It's for a job. It's for their own
0: soul. Yeah, so Regent College here in Vancouver uh, mm-hmm. is kind of our, we're kind of VST where I teach is kind of Regent's liberal of me. They started to do that. They wanted okay. people who are dentists or lawyers, some secular thing who were Christians That's to come right. to Regent yeah. and to get a one-year degree and to go back and to be a dentist who's informed by their theology degree. The problem is they burned through the people in the area who were interested in that really quickly. They still do that, but it's only a side thing because you can't run a school on that. And so then at some point they were like, all right, we're going to have an a seminary degree. So they were meeting in VST's basement at the old castle at the time. And VST was like, yeah, we're not going to rent you space to be our competitor. So move along. Um, and so they got their own space and whatever. And then in a third era, they realized, hey, European theologians like Bachmuel and Packer are interested in coming here. And then their students can go to Oxbridge. That's what we want. What if we had like, Little C.S. Lewis is running around, and, and that, that became the goal. The problem is you can't run a school on any of those three things, and it's too expensive. And, and for a time, they had American students willing to come to Canada to work with Eugene Peterson and J.I. Packer, and the US dollar was strong, in, in Victor- and Vancouver was cheap to live in. That's no more, too. So they're trying to figure out, how do we be, a pan, uh, how do we be a, an Asian a Pacific Rim school? And have students with money from Malaysia come study here, and there's some of those. That's a fourth phase.
1: But so much of it is the school. It's the institution part, though, right? Like it's the, the self the, Oh, theology yep. has to be about the essays and the credits, the accreditation, and the hoops you jump through, and then the the letters after your name.
0: And that's exactly right.
1: Yeah, this is why, why I'm so. That's what you commit- see yeah. all the time. It distorts it so forever. I'm, I'm part. I don't feel like saying their name. But people who know me will know what I'm talking about. I was part of a, of a theology institution, you know, love the people, love the place. They had this great idea. Let's start a thing where it's just Saturday school of theology. Let's just start. And we just meet on Saturdays or we meet on Thursday nights and we don't get it's not, you know, it's not it's not for anything. It's just to get theology into people. And then what happens, is it just kind of inevitably gets absorbed back into the program and it becomes a thing where you start issuing qualifications again or you start having to go through a program and you just watch these things get sucked back into the the system over and over and over again
0: we've got a visit coming up with our accrediting body and um it just reminds me why i don't want to do administration because you know we'll have a meeting and they'll be like all right we're gonna be here for two days Like two days what are you talking about let's do this in 20 minutes and then you look at all the stuff you got to do and it's like do you have enough books in the library I don't know. Ask the library. What? Why are we, why are you wasting my time? You know? And by the end of it, you've spent a quarter of a million dollars and they're like, congratulations, you're accredited again. Like, God, what a waste.
1: What Um, a waste. I know. Also that you can have UBC at the end of your your
0: literature, right? So we can have a diploma that looks better. But nobody ever Um,
1: stops and thinks maybe UBC or Durham or Oxford isn't the best home for thinking about the worship of God in spirit and truth.
0: That's exactly right. So you and I both worked on weird things in our doctoral work. You worked on Kierkegaard, and you can't work on Kierkegaard without becoming weird. Like he 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 brings yeah. you into his weird, and it and it's contagious, and you can't get the smell off. Right? I worked on a figure Alexa like Jesus and Augustine reading the Psalms christologically. No one likes that. No one likes that. No right. Um, but I'm ruined now. I can't do it. It's this a, a doctoral degree is designed to ruin you, so you can't get out of it. Right. Um, now people move on and do other things and I've moved on and done other things and you've moved on and, do, and done other things, but we're interested in something that's defies the categories, right? Yeah. Um, I don't like the German fourfold theological discipline. So I found a topic that made me go through all four of them and was, un- was not limited to one. Right. So I did Augustine, that is church history. I did his sermons, that is practical ministry. Uh, I did it as
1: a systematician. And the Psalms, so you're doing biblical studies. And I was in
0: the Bible, right? So none of those fields see my stuff and think, well, he's doing what I did. No, they're like, no, this is something else. So in sports terms, I'm a tweener. I I have no position, right? Um, Which is why seminary works for me, because pastors are tweeners. Yeah, right. They're not allowed to say, I don't know what that verse in Ephesians means. I study Philippians. But you can do that if you're a New Testament scholar, right? In the life of the church, these things are not divided. And that's why the church is a place I have huge hope for, even though I don't have hope for institutions like the ones we're describing.
1: From time to time, I'm asked to endorse or promote books. I do not always accept these requests, but this time I am very happy to do all I can to get a copy of Lisa Sharon Harper's book, Fortune, into your hands. If you pre-order Fortune by February the 7th, you will get an audiobook version read by the author for free. This is the book friend of the show Shane Claiborne says is pure fire from beginning to end, and I couldn't agree more. Visit lisasharonharper.com forward slash fortune for all the information you need. Let's talk about church a bit I mean where do you where do you see church happening now is it is it I don't know what's what's happening Jason to church these <laughs> days I, I there's so many people I meet I mean I just have lost track of people I meet who go you know what I really like Jesus but church I don't know anymore and they aren't they aren't like angry deconstructing evangelicals they're not super liberal waffly people they're like pillars of christian faith and discipleship and and they're saying you know what i just don't really like the agendas and apparatus that come with church apparatus is a good name for it i still like everything else and what are we doing then how does that fit how is how is theology changing to adapt to those people
0: i learned something this whole i like jesus but not the church I, i learned something about that from nadia boltz weber this lutheran church planter denver um, who said she was meeting people who like the church but not Jesus? So these are kind of young people with like an eighty-year-old soul who yeah, feel like I do meet some of
1: them, you know, them sometimes. Yeah,
0: and they're not very many, but they tend to be beloved by the institution because they're like, oh, look, a young person who likes us, and so they just throw privileges at them, and they're the people ruining us, right? So my my spouse, Jaylen, uh, pastors a United Church of Canada congregation, little bit of evangelical ethos, but aging. <clears throat> I pastor a Presbyterian Church in Canada congregation, Chinese Presbyterian, it's a 125-year-old immigrant congregation here. We've all been on the computer during COVID, of course. And in my place is also aging. They're both desperate to do something new, but they don't know how. And they both have, they both have property. And so they're not going to close. So as long as you have property up on the west coast of Canada, you could can stay open forever. You could have no people. You could have no services and you could still pay a preacher, right? That's true of any place that still has. Valuable real estate, right? But there's something in them that also wants their children to go to church. Some of their children go to church. None of them go to our churches.
1: Even your son, your son doesn't go to either of his parents' churches.
0: Our children, our children don't go to our churches. So, what would it be like to use some of the money we're sitting on, learn from some of the people who are leading church in a way that my kids do want to go to, but do it in a way that has integrity for our sake? Can you do that? I'm in some conversation with people who want to do that. I'm a little skeptical. Um, Cause I feel like if we're in the conversation, we've already ruined it. It's, it's sort of like somebody who's getting, mar- getting married again and you wish him luck and you go to the party and you pray for him, And then you're like, has anyone told you you're taking yourself into this marriage with you? Like, <laughs> here, here's the number of a good therapist. And um, as soon as it falls apart, call them and uh, hang in there, good luck.
1: So are you saying guys like I should just get out of theology- we shouldn't try to innovate something. We should just stop no, and let, yeah, no, let it that, bubble up from below.
0: Maybe, because it sure feels like anything we get our hands on, we ruin. So this is why I'm a supporter of, of you starting something on your own. The, the trick is just how do you get capital for it? Because there's no, nobody's going to make money in it. If there's a church that will sort of subvent it, then that can be good. But then that's the very source. You know, those are the golden handcuffs, right?
1: Yeah, because then the church says, well, we're paying all this they money. We want you to serve... Our that's vision right. and our right. Yeah. So if
0: there's a way to do it without money, if there's a way to have something else be your day job, then I think that's the way forward. Yeah. But that's awfully hard to do because the skills you and I have are church and academy skills and they want all of your time.
1: Yeah. And it's but it's all very well somebody like me going freelance after twenty years of institutional theology. I mean that's right. It's not like I was seventeen and went, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna start a freelance theological school. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you were already a theologian. I
1: then. was 45 and I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to start a three, you know, and I already had a lot of that under my belt. So right. I don't know where where the next generation would come from. and I don't Because either. I don't, I'm not going to do it. Tenth theology isn't going to start creating PhD theologians, right? But what Tenth theology might do is my vision for this is, to, is for it to be way less about me and much more of like a platform for any phd level theologian maybe people who like jesus but don't like the church maybe those kind of people i don't know but any phd level theologian who genuinely has some sense of the lordship of christ or the the way of jesus or the fellowship of the saints would be somebody who could be let loose to other environments to businesses or to churches or to groups or networks yes any group could have its own theologian for a time or on the books, right? And this is my goal for Tent Theology, is to, to have it almost just more like a, a dating site for, so that groups can find theologians. You swipe right, you swipe left if you don't like the look <laughs> of them and you keep going. And, but it's not like this kind of, uh, you, you must send your people to this institution called the seminary in order to get a degree and get a Christian job at the end of it. It'd be more like there are people with the skills of theological examination and history church history and biblical studies who are willing to open up those spaces inside the spaces you are in. Wouldn't totally. you like that to happen, you know? I love it, man. And, and then you have to pay for it.
0: Right. You found some traction there, right?
1: Yeah. I found some traction. What you really fight is the culture because Christians of all stripes um, do not like to pay. They right. They are trained to think that they shouldn't pay for their Christianity, for their experts. That's right. So Christians churches will very happily pay for it if their computer system breaks down or if the toilets blow up they'll they'll happily pay for an expert to come and fix the toilets or the it system right, right. but when they realize that their church is going crazy with i don't know coronavirus conspiracy theories or when there's a little faction in the group uh, in the church that's reading the book of revelation with literalist fundamentalist eyes and right. it's ruining everybody else and they bring in somebody to teach for them. That person then gets, sometimes, if you're lucky, you know, a gift card on Amazon we'll take, or something.
0: We'll take you to lunch. I mean, and, and you can't live that way. No. So uh, I, I find the same problem. When I teach on the side in a local church, nobody has to come to that. They're all there voluntarily. Yeah. So even if they bring you in to teach, here's how the real way to read Revelation, the people who need to hear that probably don't turn up right? No. Um, and so you're preaching to kind of the, to kind of to the choir and then you get your gift card and everything. When I, when I teach in those settings, I find I have very little ability to rule something out. Do you know what I mean? So like in my classroom, if somebody says something out of bounds, I have a little power to say, you know what, that's, here's why that's not going to work. And here's some resources on that. Um, but that's not how we're going to talk about this. If I'm in a local church setting for a Bible study on a Wednesday night, I can't yeah. do that. No, you have I to have
1: slap to... a fixed grin on your face and you have to just nod and that's, wait for them to stop talking.
0: That's very interesting. Anyone else have anything to say? Like you, yeah, you have to yeah, be, yeah. A, you know, kind of shitty eatingly nice the whole yeah, time. Yeah,
1: you do. Yeah, you do. So there's
0: a, the the modest amount of, of, of hard power you get in the classroom where you can grade. Um, that's one of the, one of the gifts I still find in an, in an academic institution But Mm -hmm. one thing I'm interested in, Stephen, is what what are these new forms? And you're not the only example. There's countless examples. So um, uh, I was telling you before we got on that I was talking to a a friend who's a a great lover of John Henry Newman. And um, she started- Can we
1: mention her by name?
0: Yeah. Because she
1: is a hero of mine? I would love to. We can mention her by name. Okay. Uh, this
0: is Sarah Coakley. Yeah, um, Sarah Coakley. uh, the uh, Hulse Professor Emeritus at Cambridge, and who's now in the U.S., and she started this amazing Sunday school program uh, at the church where she's doing ministry in D.C., and what she does is she invites incredibly gifted theologians, spiritual leaders, pastors, and she interviews them. It's like this. It's conversation. Only her friends are Rowan Williams and Sam Wells and people like that, right? Martin Laird, like gifted spiritual writers, and then I notice when she teaches, and she does lecture in this thing, in this school for I forget what it's called, school for discipleship or something. Um, uh, it's the same stuff she would teach at Cambridge. Yeah, she doesn't dumb it down. She this doesn't. This is the
1: future. This is something is here. We got to keep. That's doing right. This. Yeah.
0: Now it works because she's Sarah Coakley and esteemed worldwide, and a little church is happy to have her do this and underpay and overuse her. And she's, you know, she's, she, she retired near her grandchildren. And so she's got the energy to do this. She could do this for years. I think there are hundreds of examples of creative experiments. We just haven't, nobody knows where they are.
1: I'm finding a few. So I I don't want to actually just complain about church. There are, there are lots of stories of churches, of people where you're fighting a culture and they don't, they don't value it, what you're offering. But in my experience, I've also found lots of other people who do. And that's where you start to notice the word, like, okay, these are fellow travelers. And, and, I, know, and I, I work with some churches that, that pay for the work I do for them to the point where I realize that it is, it's becoming a, it's probably a significant item on their, on their yearly budget. And I do not take that for granted at all. And I work really hard for them. And, uh, and because they have realized that, no, actually, this is part, we talk about discipleship. Well, that's what this looks like. It looks like getting in like somebody like Stephen and his friends. If we really want this, if we really want to draw from somebody who devoted 20, 30 years of their life to studying the Bible to then teach our people, this is what it looks like. It looks like this. And and I really appreciate that. And I do see a small group of people doing that. It's not, I do too. It's not the majority culture in churches. Majority culture doesn't care. But there are some that do.
0: My church I pastored in North Carolina, Stephen uh, Boone Methodist, which is a thriving place. Um, we were trying to figure out the future. We didn't have good language for it. And so somebody's like, let's get a consultant. And somebody else said, yeah, consultant just overcharges you and borrows your watch and tells you what time it is. Let's not do that. So, But we eventually ended up getting a consultant. And you know, it cost a staggering amount of money. So I, I went around to my business people, and I was like, this dude wants $30,000 to work with us for a year. And my business people were like, $30,000? That's all? I can find that in change in my couch cushions. Like, are you sure he's legit? Like, this is too little money to be charging for a real consultant. I was like, no, he's legit. Look at the qualification. And they were like, well, sure. I'll write you the check right now. Um, and so you realize in the business world, this looks like chunk change.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: in the church world, it looks like this is outrageous.
1: Yeah. Well, Th- this There's is the-
0: no way. Yeah. That's exactly this is a
1: problem doing. that you have where um, the problem is, is that I was talking to a guy. He was, he used to work in the church as a pastor in the church here in the UK. And then, and then he's transitioned now and now he does lots of management consultants and leadership development stuff. Right. And he said, The problem is, I'll I'll go to churches and they'll say, We really want your your expertise to help us with our church structure and church management. And we really want to pay you. And he says, No, you don't. You don't want to pay me. Um, Let me do this for you for free. Because he said, Like, the problem is, is that if, if the, when he said, Okay, you can pay me, And he will give the lowest, like he will give such a low daily rate for him that for him, it's like he's giving it's, it's like, he's just giving his money away to the church. It's like an act of giving to them from the church's point of view. That is the highest daily rate they've ever seen. Yeah. And so both sides think they're doing the other one a favor and nobody's happy. Right. And what he said is like, you know what? I'd rather work really expensive or free. (laughs) I don't want to, uh, I have another friend. I, I, do a, uh, I do a podcast with a rabbi uh, called The Hyphen. and he, He's a rabbi in Montreal. And he, he also trying to do some freelance uh, religious studies, education stuff. And he said, yeah, it's the death by a by hundred dollar checks. You do all this work. And then at the end of it, you get sort of chump change. And they think they're doing you a huge favor. <laughs> and you can't complain, right? Because they are. This is the other thing is they are like it is expensive for these poor churches to hire these people. I, I get it. So I'm part, what I've been doing is I've been moving outside of churches too these days. And then and, and there's businesses. If you find believers who think, yeah, I want to think Christianly about how we run our business or how we organize ourselves. They can bring you in as a, as a consultant. You can do work writing and thinking for them, have an in-house theologian or philosopher for a time. There's stuff you can do.
0: You're challenging one of my notions. One of my notions is that if you, you need to be desperate enough and have little, to, to have little enough money left that you're willing to try something risky, but that's not what you're describing. You're describing businesses that are actually running well and, uh, and think, "No, this would be a good investment of it's not like we have money sitting around to burn, but this person will help us not only be more Christian but probably. better business
1: well yeah and you don't even a lot of my work these days or what i want to do is is you're just translating the you're burning the churchianity out of things so you're just you're doing it like you're going hey you know what um these christians that there are churches today or the there's the christian movement today that has lasted for two thousand years there are institutions that have lasted for two thousand years yeah that is that is longer than any human institution in the history of human institutions okay that's right that's right wouldn't you be interested in seeing how they did it wouldn't you like to read their instruction manuals and then you go and you look at the new testament and you don't look at the new testament as a magic book that fell from the sky you look at it as like well guess what the book of philippians it talks about how to do conflict resolution how to organize you odia, well a key. Yes. be like jesus right kenosis is is how you deal with power. That's right. And um, a lot of the New Testament is actually just manuals for how to organize yourself well, how to set up That's institutions right. well. So well now you
0: sound like a Mennonite.
1: But see, yeah, right. Well, I'm I'm way more in the Anabaptist world than I am in anything else. And and I and I do feel like if you do the work of translating or burning the Christianity out of a thing, you can still the goodness still stays there for sure. <laughs> and that they, these aren't just magic books for. For religious people they are human documents of of goodness in the world this is what goodness
0: in the world i mean you're a kierkegaard guy and you're doing this um kierkegaard is not thought of as an institutional animal in fact he was uh, a kind of singular force of nature and yet with a kierkegaardian soul you're starting something fresh and i think you would probably quibble with the notion that it's an institution you don't think of tent theology as an institution,
1: do you? Well, I think institutions are non-optional. I mean, we all, humans are institution-creating animals. That's what we do.
0: <laughs> so it is an institution then. Yeah. Yeah it's, just a, yeah. it's just a better one.
1: But the trick is, how do you make human institutions, how can you spot when they've grown inhuman? And how do you stop them from growing inhuman? That's What really do you do hard. once you've realized it's inhuman? And so many of the problems in our world today are because institution, inhuman institutions are allowed to just continue and they roll over in
0: protestantism we just bolt we're like all right this one's bad i'm gonna start another one
1: yeah and it's going to be better
0: that's not a catholic or an orthodox pattern in those places you can innovate from within the institution you can start an order or you can go somewhere where the pope doesn't care what you're saying or the bishop doesn't care what you're saying or whatever that that's but that's harder to do if bolting isn't an option is it i mean for us it's natural i'll just start a better one
1: well a lot of a lot of evangelicalism or certainly evangelicalism is is governed by geography rather than anything else because if you uh, if you, when you live in england you've lived in england right yes the the anglican church like real estate is a is a premium there isn't right. if you don't like what the church is saying or doing it's it's really hard to set up your own church it really it's really is. hard you, but in america if you don't like what the pastor's saying you just go down the street and you start you throw up another warehouse and you start another church (laughs) And there's endless space right and i think the endless space the geography of north america has actually influenced its ecclesiology quite a lot
0: i'm sure you're right about that where you can Um, cut
1: and run whereas anglicans for example look there are church splits and there are things in the english experience but by it is nothing compared to the north american experience
0: no that's true um Yeah. The joke about the desert island—you know this joke. Everyone knows this joke. Do you know this joke? Yeah, I've heard. I've heard it from Jews. I've heard it from Protestants. I've heard it from other religions. Uh, guys found on the desert island. There's three dwellings. Why three dwellings? That's my house. That's my church. That's the church I used to go to. <laughs> yeah. <right? laughs> um, I just think it's brilliant, but it, it, it describes America better than Britain, but but Britain also had a much more fractious relationship. Oh, well, they theology. came from, I
1: mean, the American impulse Every came one from of the Brits,
0: right? right? So came this impulse the all, came, yeah. all yeah. came from the Puritans. Of course. And yeah. what are the Puritans? But an effort to say, look, a continent with no people. Yeah, that's yeah. because the diseases in your war killed all of them. Anyway, um, we're just going to take it and we're going to make a holy commonwealth this time yeah well you tried that with Cromwell. how did that work well it's different this time there's no people yeah that's anyway you get the point so there's no one who doesn't have blood on their hands um and this is why i'm sympathetic with a kind of catholic impulse that says um yeah let's let's try and innovate from within the decaying structures and birth something new right that way they won't notice and by the time you're big enough um that they feel threatened by it they'll just claim that it was their doing all along
1: well all in all i mean christianity itself but all institutions in some ways renew themselves every generation anyway it's that's just right. the, yeah. the unhealthy ones don't recognize that the truth of that and they fight it whereas i think the healthy ones go you know what christianity has renewed its new generation all the time and that's right um, and it is going to happen whether we like it or not <laughs> so a lot of these fights that we have these sort of conservatives fighting against progressives or whatever it's a lot of it is just generational and they're not totally totally yeah um so how do you know am i starting am i starting a new institution see i don't think i'm starting a new institution i am resisting i'm deliberately putting in place things that will stop what i'm starting becoming uh a structure that will have a life of its own Apart from the people in it,
0: so that doesn't necessarily mean it wouldn't continue after your lifetime. There could well be a successor to you and a board that that person answers to. But right? I don't
1: want that. Like I, I'm, res- one of the things I'm resisting is so scale, scalability. The idea that for a thing to be successful, it must scale upwards and outwards, and I, and that right. is a that's something I resist. I'm not sure. I, I do think small is better. I agree. Term is better. Uh, things that you build. I think longevity can be a real trap and also a real lie. No, that's true. But it, I mean, what you
0: said has some deep validity, what you say to businesses. I mean, the Church of England is twice as old as the monarchy in England, and it's three times as old as the parliament. And um, it's the oldest institution bar none um, in those islands. And that's a benefit there.
1: We americans don't think of it that way we, it's we not think... a christian benefit it's a benefit it's an institutional benefit right
0: but it's a... but, but there's something that's a christian benefit isn't there i mean this is it's not that older is better by no means um it's that uh when i bring up the age of the church in a way like i just did people get quiet and think about it like that's actually something people want is some roots in a yeah, but a here's
1: age. here's the Kier- here's where Kierkegaard yeah. shows up. He's yes. like, yes, these are two different things. The success of your institution and your your civilization, right? That's one story to be had. Whether that is following the Jesus way of Jesus God. or not is a completely different story. And that Christendom right. substitutes quality for quantity all the time. So they look at the right. quantity and they go, look how many buildings we've got, look how many people we have, look how many years we've lasted, right. Uh, and they He's go, right. look, we, we must yeah. be true then. We must, Our quality must be right because our quantity is so big.
0: Right. Now, this is, this is exactly right. Uh, and it's people, like, those are, are true. true.
1: Those, yeah, those yeah, are yeah. true. And the, the incarnation was just as hard to understand and just as offensive to believe in three seconds after it happened. Right. Mary's womb, right? That's right. That's Mary right. faced the exact same crisis of faith that we today face 2000 years later. In fact, right. probably we probably have it worse because we have all the baggage of 2000 years. But right. But the idea is that like th- what it means to have faith in Jesus is not based on how many languages the Bible's been translated into. No,
0: I'm totally with you. Although I do have a soft spot for Bible translation.
1: Um, but only uh, so this is the Kierkegaard thing is only if all that stuff is only useful to the extent that it brings people to that sharp, short shock of, are they offended by Jesus or not? Have they met Jesus yeah. or not? Yeah. Are yeah, they in the yeah. moment with the incarnation? Right. So all right. of that right. stuff, if it doesn't bring people to that point. Right. No, I,
0: I agree with you. And I'm an evangelical. I'm a Methodist. I can preach a revival. Um, the whole I think evangelicalism, of the
1: church... is one of, evangelicalism is one of the worst expressions one of, the of Christianity worst. we've oh, had. Totally. Yeah, yeah, But
0: what it exists for is to, I mean, at its best, is to bring people to that um, encounter with Jesus that changes them and yeah. changes the culture. That's um, its language. language. That's not that's what's its language. really happening. No, I no. agree entirely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, let me give you a story from here. So Eugene Peterson, great teacher at Regent, um, likes to quote Kierkegaard, the more people, the less truth.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, and, you know, churches around vancouver used to say they had to take regent graduates and de petersonize them because they would assume that if they had too many people it must be less truth right um was sort of lovely um love but yeah. um but it's not necessarily the case that the less people the more truth so no. um uh just being small or just being dysfunctional yeah, yeah. doesn't make you truer or more no. faithful
1: the size of people um, does not influence the truth right,
0: of it right right so um my, my hesitation is a kind of episodic approach to faith that says it just sort of breaks out spontaneously um when actually a tradition that's born from one generation to the next can be one way that people are brought to an encounter with the living god um at least that's what i'm trying to do from within an existing truth <laughs> structure right um, i could just be misleading but, but just myself what makes- and others
1: But that's just what makes that's what that's what gives you meaning to the job. Right. So it's not that it's just kind of like if if your purpose in life or if your job, all it does is it just keeps the institution going really well. Right. Well, from a from a Christ point of view, you've wasted your life. But if your job in the institution is bringing people to the point where they are meeting Jesus in the incarnation and they have to make a decision whether they're offended or not well then that's the point
0: really yeah this is one thing i get from church planting friends often who really do want a big church and are disappointed that they only have a few hundred people i always want to tell them that's a big church you realize and they're like no it's small anyway um but the language Mm -hmm. they'll use is uh i want there to be no offense except christ so i don't want people to be offended because the greeting is bad or because the music is bad or because it like the only thing or because the children's ministry is unwelcoming that's the real danger right yeah. um i only want them to meet the crucified one and be offended by him um that's good language and as you say that could be the language but not the actual institutional effect
1: right i mean because let's not forget it's evangelicals that have given us culture wars and rabid enthusiastic overwhelming trump support and nationalism i mean you
0: know, done there's some something in things. that
1: culture which has not created Right. If everybody who called themselves an evangelical in North America today was actually a follower of the way of Jesus, <laughs> can you imagine how different the world would look? But that's not what we have, right? We don't no. have that. We have a culture that is very good at producing shock troops to protect its own culture. That's what we've got. Yeah,
0: I mean, from within evangelicalism, this is where you distinguish pretty fast between fundamentalism and evangelicalism. We're the good evangelicals. We're not the bad fundamentalists. But that's it's too fast. Violated, oh, too that's very fast. Yeah, yeah, a yeah. distinction. And yeah. what yeah. I find in reality is that um, churches just check out of the political conversation officially, in the sense that they're like, "Don't do politics." And the problem that leaves you in as a preacher is, well, all I got is Jesus and his political. I know. I know. There's nothing else. Yeah, I know.
1: Well, you're constantly running. I constantly run into churches where it's like, oh, that old excuse me while my eyes roll so far back in my head that I have to turn around backwards so you can see them. Right. Oh, we just do the gospel here. We don't do social justice. We don't like social justice. <laughs> Anything. All right. So fine. You let you think the gospel is all about the transformation of the inner self. All right. To have the mind of Christ. Great. So what happens the second somebody who has an inner transformation and in the mind of Christ starts caring about the foreigner and the poor person? Yes. And, and decides that they don't want to kill a human being or kill a prisoner or kill a violent enemy. Uh, what are you going to tell them? Like we what just do you think? Do... Gospel. what do you think is happening what do we you think? we don't
0: do social justice yeah where no, do you think this right. came
1: from it comes from people transformed well, by an encounter with christ
0: it's also white evangelicalism in this continent so i don't find african-american evangelicals latino evangelicals indigenous evangelicals in canada i don't find them um right uh bamboozled in the same way
1: right this is this is where the nationalism becomes really it's not minor it's it's the rock solid center it's of, the thing of evangelical yeah. identity white evangelical identity right. because it's protecting right that form of, yeah, inherited Puritan manifest destiny. My friends who lead in African-American churches tell me, you know, they're also
0: subject to the decay of Christendom problems in terms of less money and power and influence. The extra challenge there is the black church is the custodian of the civil rights movement and its stories. Yeah. And so when they, when they decline, it's not just they who are declining. It's, it's the story they bear. Right. Um, And that's true in some cases in white evangelicalism too but it's there's a particular pain to it um and i i don't know how to help in that conversation uh
1: and so i i
0: won't unless asked you know
1: well yeah i mean it is true that there are things that we just can't speak to it just is true there are things there are times when bearded white evangelical men just need to shut up absolutely it's it and it's not because you and I are personally responsible for all the evils in the world. It's like, you know what? It's time to let other people have yeah. a say. Like you guys have tried
0: hard enough to sort things out for us, and we call that slavery and Jim Crow. So why don't y'all knock yourselves out and uh, do your own thing for a little while?
1: I how do you I mean as a f as a as a fellow white beardy Christian guy, how do you find I mean like how do you find when you when when you want to comment on something yeah. when you know it's not your patch
0: so we have this in Canada at the moment because there are these unmarked graves of children at residential schools being discovered all over western Canada. yeah these were well known the Truth and Reconciliation Commission suggested that there may be as many as six thousand such graves. The thing is now we have the technology to find them, and so they found about a thousand, so this is going to get worse and um it's just this process of finding these graves is what's brought it to public attention. And so
1: mm-hmm.
0: Catholic churches are burning um, on yeah. Indian, They're on reserves. are literally Reservers. being burnt right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, uh, I mean, where I come from, uh, black churches are never set on fire by black people. They're set on fire by race, racist white people. Yeah. Um, the, we don't know who's setting these fires, um, but the assumption is that it's indigenous people who've had enough. And um so the 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 thing that does is like there's political pressure on a liberal prime minister like Justin Trudeau to denounce this. And so what word did he use? Inappropriate. Now agreed it's inappropriate to burn a church down, it's inappropriate to build to burn anything down that doesn't belong to you. Um it's indigenous people who are saying, hey, wait, we built these churches. This is our church. Yeah. yeah, we let the priests come in every now and then and say mass, but I built this church. Actually, my father built this church. And it's on parents. my land. And, yeah. and my, my grandfather's buried there with a properly marked stone and everything. So like, we've got the pressure on Canada now to do something mm-hmm. about residential schools. Let's, let's let that, that's a peaceful process of talking. Yeah. Um, let's let that play out. But burning our own churches, it's not that it's inappropriate. It's a desecration. Just as much as murdering little children was. Yeah. yeah. Um, now I don't. I'm not being asked to speak to that, so I won't, and I shouldn't. Um, the Catholic Church, headed by a white Archbishop, no beard, unfortunately, <laughs> um, uh, in Vancouver. Um, what's he going to say? I I don't know what Archbishop Miller should say. I think he can't say anything. I think you have to listen. Now yeah. I know that what I know what's being said to the Vatican by Canadian Catholic leaders. Um, and ultimately, it's going to involve a guy in a white robe needing to turn up and make a personal apology, whether yeah. that happens or not. And that's not going to be enough, but that would be a good start. So is he yeah. listening to this podcast? Can we send this to Big Frank? I, I think we got some pressure we can bring to bear. What do you think, Steve?
1: <laughs> I did have the Archbishop of Canterbury on this podcast. so I, you know.
0: I, I bet he's got his cell phone. They're besties. They're sending emojis to each other, don't you think?
1: Sometimes I play this game with myself. I'm like, If, if, if my life absolutely depended on it, could I get a phone call to the Pope? (laughs) Who do I know? (laughs) Or you play with other people like Bono. If my life absolutely depended on it, could I get a phone call with Bono?
0: (laughs) I think you and I are probably only one degree of separation from both those jokers. But the problem is they got an apparatus designed to not get phone calls through.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. And I salute
0: (laughs) them for it. You and I do not have this problem.
1: Uh, well, no, that's because, yeah. because we were, we're choosing, that's because we chose our lives to be professional theologians, which isn't really the root. Yeah,
0: we answer oh, the we phone on the first ring.
1: I mean, nobody listens, they? nobody likes theologians.
0: Yeah, like a friend, of mine, a friend of mine says, in what crisis does someone say,
1: quick, get me a theologian? Exactly. Uh, yeah. And also, you preach preaching, right? Whereas the, the word, the word pre- like, don't preach, nobody ever uses it as a Positively. compliment. I don't know Papa You're don't so preach. Preachy. preachy is not a compliment. Yeah,
0: it's not. No. And you know, there are lots of people who are trying to dismantle and uh and so on. I i still think there might be a place for preaching. We'll see. Um,
1: you have an appreciation for the for the beauty of the form. I do. Yeah.
0: Um Ross Lockhart and I wrote a book on uh churches in um Cascadia, that is the Pacific Northwest and um British Columbia that are growing in a place where churches shouldn't be growing. So we looked at the outliers and one story that Ross tells in um, it's called better than brunch. Uh, There's the book. So one of the stories that Ross tells is of a really good preacher friend of ours, shaking hands at the door, and he's expecting a compliment. And this old man says to him, all the good preachers are dead. (laughs) And he walks out. (laughs) And uh, that's not true. Stephen's a good preacher. The problem is we're, We've, we we can't even tell where we're doing it wrong, um, so yeah, don't know what to do with all that.
1: Where do you think the future is as we come into land? What right. what what do you see happening the next for the next generation of of um, churchy of church life and theological, academic theological life? Do you see any trends coming that you think we should watch out for? Yeah,
0: um, I don't know how to analogize from Canada to the U.S. or Britain on this, but um, in our crisis with First Nations, indigenous peoples at the moment, um, you have a lot of politicians, secular people, journalists who are very tentatively approaching indigenous church leaders and saying, what's happening right. and what do we do? Yeah. Um, so my, my colleague at BST, Ray Aldred, who's the director of our indigenous studies program, Is fielding these media requests and not just from Canada, but from the US as well and other places. And um, it gives him an opportunity to speak. And so the the danger is these are the very people whose institutions misrepresented his culture for 500 years. And so why should he trust them to do better this time? Both yeah. in politics and in journalism and the church and, and so on. This is a Canada problem. This is not the church was murdering kids. This was Canada was murdering kids, right? Yeah.
1: So the government um, was paying the church to run the schools.
0: Yeah. That's right. And we weren't exactly sending our best and brightest to do it. And that was a great way if you were um, a particularly damaged human being to damage other human beings. Yeah. Um, not defending any of it, it's reprehensible. Um, but it's not, yeah. So so Ray says that some of his reaction is, um. No. I'm not talking. Right. You guys can go get lost. Yeah. But then he he kind of remembers. Okay, I'm I'm supposed to say something better than that. So um, so one story he often tells is of former uh, Prime Minister of Canada uh, being in a room with Indigenous Christian leaders, and this Prime Minister um, was a serious uh, Catholic, and saying to them, "Why would you all still be Christian after everything this country has done to you?" Mm-hmm. And not Ray, but one of his colleagues, she said, because Jesus is God. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nobody's debating that you guys messed this thing up. But how about this? Maybe we'll do it right this time. And we'll start by forgiving you, Mr. Prime Minister. Um, Okay. That just shows you
1: uh, somebody who's the prime minister whose Christian imagination went towards defending his own institutions. And he's like, how... How can you still be Christians when the institution is so bad? That's right. And they That's look right. at him and they go, Because we're not in it for the institution.
0: That's not why we're doing it. We're in it for Jesus and for all his weird friends. I think Jesus is still summoning up a community of all the wrong people. That's why I'm still in the business. Right. And um, that will continue until he returns. Um, the mistake we made is thinking it's our job to make history turn out right. And yeah. Um, we keep replicating that mistake. So this is my Anabaptist sort of uh, yeah, Mennonite leaning, like yeah. yours, uh, also fed by Kierkegaard, but also a little bit by Barth. Um, uh, that it's the word of the Lord, Lord alone, that raises up a resurrection people. And if yeah. you try and control that, you'll 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 do
1: it wrong. Yeah. I like that. That's a good place to end, Jason. Jason Biasi, you, thank Steve. you for coming on this. I, I really want to keep chatting with you. I'm sure that we will continue this conversation.
0: I hope sometime well. in the future. I, I, hey i love what you're doing i think it's so important uh every blessing on it thank you Stephen.
1: well we'll have to talk off offline about how to start some kind of radical theology school without Let's offering it. any degrees or marking any no
0: degrees therefore no scholarships no accreditation just like
1: fun Let's do that. <laughs> just fun <laughs> thanks jason it's been Blessings, great to plan. have you take here. care all right Bye. cheers
0: thank you for listening thanks to david backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talk's Patreon page, or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.